You are now listening to The Sound of Sanity. This sound will continue for the duration of the program. Hello, listener. Welcome to Sound of Sanity. I'm Nathan. I'm your humble and obedient host. And sitting right to my right, it's Jake. Hey. The pastor who's a master of sanity. And sitting to my left, we have the preacher who's a teacher of sanity. Jake, why don't you tell the people about him? It's Ben. That's all you need to know. That's everything that you need to know. Hey, let's get right into it today. This is part three of our series on infertility treatments and IVF. You guys remember what IVF stands for, right? In vitro fertilization or fertilization in glass. In our previous episodes, we talked about the fertilization industry at large and the history of IVF. Today, we want to take you through the IVF process. And just say it up front. We're going to see how callous this whole process is towards little babies made in God's image. So let's get started, Ben. Okay, dope. Let's go through a typical case of IVF. As we describe it, yeah, the callousness Nathan just mentioned is going to be evident in the attrition rates of the embryos. Meaning the rates of embryo death. So the first step is egg retrieval. Woman's given drugs that stimulate her ovaries to produce eggs, and then maybe 10 to 20 eggs are harvested from her. It, it can really vary from a little to a lot, but let's say it's 16 for the sake of our example. So the amount that's harvested just depends on the woman's age, ovarian health, that kind of thing? Yeah, and also the process that's used. So IVF procedures have gotten more and more precise, and now there's such a thing as micro-IVF, or mini-IVF, which tries to produce fewer eggs. Fewer eggs? Yeah, it's just a cheaper process because it uses less of the expensive drugs that stimulate egg production. Okay, anyway, how many eggs would typically be uh, harvested? harvested? Yeah, harvested in a cycle of IVF. Nathan, I'm glad you asked. I have a quote from an article about IVF in the UK that gives us an idea. Quote, the findings based on number of eggs extracted versus IVF cycles show that a total of more than 1.625 million eggs in the UK were retrieved from 147,274 women between 2015 and 2018, although an average of 11 eggs was collected per patient. 16% of cycles were associated with 16 to 49 oocytes eggs retrieved per cycle, and 58 women each had over 50 eggs collected in a single egg retrieval procedure, unquote. So, in some cases, a whole lot of eggs. If a doctor harvests 40 eggs, let's say, what happens? Do they go to waste? Are they all fertilized? Well, the money quote from the article is this. Quote, Now a retrospective observational study suggests that IVF clinics in the UK may be retrieving far too many oocytes, and that most of them may never be used and are probably discarded. And it also says that there was a fertilization rate of 57%. So a little over half of those eggs that were harvested would become embryos. Right, but I don't know if we can answer your question about what happens to them with any certainty. I saw in an online forum one woman talking about how the doctors harvested over 80 eggs from her. Whoa, no way. Yeah, and how she had lots of embryos after that. She doesn't say how many, but man, imagine if it was 40. So that's like 40 little people from one cycle of IVF. Maybe so. And she had way more than she needed, so she started donating right away, but between her and the donor family, they could only get through so many, and since she couldn't find other donor families that were just what she wanted, she intended to donate the remaining embryos to science. 
Which, of course, is just the death sentence. Well, that is a terrifying story of people playing God cavalierly. Yeah. By the way, I don't think we quite defined what a cycle of IVF is. We keep using that phrase. All right. Enlighten us. So a cycle or round of IVF counts all the steps from preparing a woman's body for egg harvesting through transferring embryos to her. And the way the term is generally used, any number of transfers are counted as being within a single cycle, as long as those embryos were created from a single harvest of eggs, if that makes sense. I think so. So a cycle could involve lots of eggs and lots of embryos and potentially lots of babies born. Right. In other words, it could end up with a lot of babies actually being born because you made enough embryos to make it happen. Okay, that's helpful to keep in mind as we move on to the next stage of the IVF cycle in our hypothetical example. Ben, uh, what's the next step? Okay, next step is that the 16 eggs that we said were successfully harvested are tested for chromosomal maturity. Just basically, is all the genetic material well-developed enough for us to keep this egg? 80% on average are mature enough to be kept for fertilization. Yeah, so in our example, let's say 13 out of 16 eggs make the grade. Unlucky number. Yeah, 16 is the worst. So now we get to it. Doctors would take those 13 eggs and attempt to fertilize them. And that fertilization process has a 70 to 80% success rate. So out of the 13 eggs, there might be uh, like 10 successfully fertilized. Right. So that would be 10 new human beings that just have come into existence. They'd be left to develop for one to six days. And I'm going to make a guess here that some of them don't make it. That's right. This is the first place where... Because you've brought these little human beings into the world in a way that's unnatural, you've made them especially vulnerable to dying. And it's your fault that they're vulnerable, and that some of them are in fact going to die. It's the first place out of many such places, as we'll see, where these little ones can or will die. Between days three and six of this development phase, 50 to 70% of the embryos will die. Okay, so if I'm tracking with our example, we had 10, so maybe we lose five and have five remaining? Yeah. Okay, so what's next? Well, next comes a selection of which ones to either transfer to the mother right away and which ones to freeze for a later transfer. So this is all making me want to throw up, but here we are, and we're going to either freeze or transfer the five embryos we have left in our hypothetical. Yeah, so an embryologist will examine the five for quality. His judgment will determine which survive to be transferred or frozen and which are too poor to save and ought to just be destroyed. So he simply has the power of life and death over these kids. Yep. That's just standard operating procedure. He consigns these embryonic children to death based on his assessment of the quality of their development. So, I mean, not to sew it on with an iron thread, but we're, we're just playing God here, folks. Yeah, we are. Now, let's say he destroys one of the embryos. Oh, it's too poor. There would be four left, and they're at a fork in the road. Probably some will be transferred right away, fresh, quote unquote, into a womb. And likely it will be their mother's womb, but it might also be the womb of a surrogate. Oh man, so surrogacy is a whole nother issue that we could do an episode about, and maybe we will sometime. But let me just make sure that everybody's tracking with the IVF process so far. So we've gotten to the point where embryos are either going to be transferred to a womb or frozen. We've had just four survive so far. Yeah, so this is the chance for some of these embryos to finally get to the place where they're meant to begin life, mother's womb. And let's say that two of our remaining four embryos are going to be put there in their natural environment. Why two? Why not just one? 
Well, simple answer is that it's unlikely both embryos will be able to implant in the uterus and come to term. But it is possible to implant just one. It's also possible to implant like three at a time. I mean, it kind of depends on how the given fertility clinic does things because the embryologists can look at the embryos and say, these embryos, they're all less likely to survive. So I'm going to put in three or even four. And that used to be more common to put in a lot at a time. Now it's probably more common to put in one or two. So for the sake of our hypothetical, we'll say two are transferred into the mother and two are frozen. Yes, but there is another step that could come before that's decided. You remember that PGT, pre-implantation genetic testing stuff? Oh, how could I forget? That's what our old friend Dr. Robert Edwards helped lay the groundwork for. That's right. So some women have their embryos tested that way. Fertility clinics heavily recommend this testing to women over 42 because their eggs are less likely to be high quality, and therefore the embryos created out of those eggs are less likely to be high quality. Yeah, one clinic's website claims that there's an 80 to 85% chance that women 42 and older will find a chromosomal abnormality in one of their embryos through this testing. Now, to be clear, chromosomal abnormality doesn't necessarily mean that your kid's going to have a significant birth defect. It just means it could. Well, I'm sure the parents just want that knowledge in order to prepare to care for the children who will have special needs, right, fellas? Yeah, right. Jake, I was being sarcastic. What I'm actually sure of is that this testing is a pretext for killing babies that don't meet the parents' genetic standards. Killing babies? Nathan, don't be so gauche. I think you mean deselecting embryos. So here we are playing God again, killing our unborn children. But Nathan, the clinic's website assures us that, quote, PGT is an incredibly safe and effective process, end quote. Safe for whom, exactly? Well, for all embryos that are, quote, chromosomally fit, end quote, which is the clinic's term, not mine. Eugenics again, yay! Yep, eugenics is inextricably woven into the world of IVF, as we've seen, and we haven't even talked about sex selection of embryos yet. Fertility doctor told me that in a clinic he'd once worked in, Parents would be completely callous about this whole sex selection thing. They just tell the doctors there, oh, no, we didn't We didn't want boys. We wanted the girls, so dispose of the boys. So it's really just like India or China with their sex-selective abortions, except the child's a little bit younger in this case. Yeah. Okay, let's keep going. So there's PGT or not. Yep. Let's say there's not in our hypothetical scenario. So two out of the four are going to end up being transferred. Okay, and two then are frozen. That's right. We'll come back to those kids later. The chance of successful implantation for the two embryos transferred is 50 to 55%, which is one embryo out of two in this case. So let's say one of them dies and one implants in his mother's womb. Then after that, the chances of a successful live birth for our remaining little guy is 45%. So... If you're tracking, listener, that means that out of the 10 human beings we started with, three are still alive. One has got a less than 55% shot of being born, and all three have been placed in positions where there's a significant chance they'll die. So maybe this one embryo in the womb will be born alive, though, although also maybe not. And that's really the end of his story, one way or another, for our purposes. But let's go back to the two that were frozen. Tell me about those. Right, so... Cryopreservation. The freezing stage of cryopreservation is more or less successful depending on which type of freezing is used. We've gotten better at freezing embryos over time, as you might imagine. Yeah, it's become a pretty safe practice at present as it goes, and so has thawing them out. 
But depending on the type of cryopreservation used and the development stage when they were frozen, some of them survive better than the child who's frozen at a different stage. So freezing and thawing as it's practiced with the latest technology and the newest version of best practices is probably not going to kill an embryo. Probably not, but it could. And sometimes it does. And that's another point in the IVF process where our society has blood on its hands. The statistics for this stuff are different depending on what website you're looking at. Our, one clinic said, hey, the thaw survival rate is between 75 and 90%, depending on the development stage of the embryo. 90% sounds good, I guess, but 75% is terrible. Yeah, okay, so let's say for the sake of our example that our two embryos are safely cryopreserved, quote unquote, then what? Then there's a lot of possibilities. Maybe the parents decide, you know what, we want to test these embryos after all, and then they'll thaw them, and they'll test them for genetic anomalies, and then they'll refreeze them. Which does expose them to extra risk of death in multiple ways, like we've talked about. Uh, good grief, Charlie Brown. Okay, let's say there's no additional testing. What then? Well, I think the first important part of the what then is that these frozen little embryos have become part of a massive horde. There are an estimated 1 million cryopreserved children in the USA alone. And that's just an estimate because... Because these cryobanks don't have to keep records. Exactly. Have we mentioned that this is not exactly a regulated industry in the U.S.? So it's probably a low estimate, actually. So back to our two little guys. One thing that happens is maybe their parents decide that, you know what, IVF has produced enough children to satisfy us, so our family is complete. That's just the kind of language you hear in this world. And if the parents decide that was enough kids, or if due to complications in the pregnancy, they decide it's not safe for the woman to bear another child, then maybe they'll give up their remaining embryos for adoption. Embryo adoption, by the way, regulated on a state-to-state -state basis. No state actually treats it as adoption. I said, I think in the first episode, they're property, legally speaking. Property of the genetic parents. This stuff happens under property law. Huh, the idea that children are the property of their parents has a long history, actually, in the pagan world. In ancient Rome, children were under the absolute authority of their father, just like slaves. Their father could simply kill them at his discretion. And that's the right pull. It's the same here, as long as the children are embryos, at least. Because the parents who are done building their families are also perfectly within their rights to have their little ones disposed of, instead of donating them. So, I'm afraid to ask, what proportions are we talking about here? Like how many children are being saved by the genetic family to maybe give birth to later or whatever? How many are donated for adoption? How many are just killed? Well, I know that not many of the unwanted children are g given up for adoption or donation. Let me go back to a quote that we shared already on our first IVF episode from a 2013 article called On Abandoned Embryos. All right, let's hear it again. All right, quote, the majority, 87% of these frozen embryos in the United States are at least in theory designated, meaning that the couples who created them plan to use them for future children. About 5% are specifically designated for destruction or research, while 2% are specifically designated for donation. And then the author makes a side note. Yeah, side notes. He says, quote, This fits with the correct observation by the pro-abortion camp regarding adoptions in general, embryo adoption or conventional adoption that most people would rather abort their unborn offspring than let somebody else raise them, unquote. So he's just saying people would rather kill their kids than let anyone else have them. Yeah. Well, I guess we saw that earlier in the story Ben shared about the woman who had 80 eggs harvested but was going to give up a ton of her embryos to science. 
after she couldn't find adoptive parents that she felt like she jived with. Yeah, here, let me finish reading this thing. Of the remaining percentages, about 3.5% are known to be abandoned, and a fraction of a percentage point are thawed for laboratory quality control. That's hard to forget. Laboratory quality control. That's right. And let's just repeat ourselves about designating embryos for research, donating them to science. Let's remember that what we're talking about is sacrificing children's lives for medical advancement. What about the 3.5% that the article was saying are, like, abandoned? Uh, What happens to them? I mean, I don't know. We're not sure how long an embryo can survive frozen. Maybe they'll slowly disintegrate over time, and that's how they'll die. Cryopreservation doesn't work for an infinitely long period of time. Shouldn't the legal system be stepping in to, like, rescue them or something? Why would the legal system step in at all, Nathan? It's just property being stored by private companies, being paid an annual fee to keep that genetic property frozen. There's no issue as far as our legal system is concerned. And besides, maybe an accident of some kind will shut off the power to a tank full of cryopreserved little babies and hundreds or thousands will die, which is what happened in March 2018 at the Pacific Fertility Center in San Francisco and at the University Hospitals Fertility Center in Cleveland, Ohio. Wait, two separate accidents at two different facilities in different states in the same month? Is that what you just said, Ben? Yep. Yeah, and there are loads of stories of individuals who end up getting pregnant with other people's embryos through some clinic's error and then suing the pants off the clinic. It is a mess. Well, okay. That's all terrible. And we could regulate the industry, and we could fix certain problems with reporting, and we could fix certain problems with cryotanks and get better quality control, whatever. But brass tax time, that wouldn't fix the central moral and ethical problems with IVF. Absolutely not. It would remain just as godless as it is now. This is an industry where we play God with the lives of children for the sake of our own convenience. We just kill babies at every step in the process. And we make a lot of money doing it, as we like to remind you. Yeah, and we really do kill babies all along the way as we as we make this money. There are so many places in the IVF process that children die during the development period. Let me just remind us, during freezing and thawing, during the selection period, during the implantation period. Not to mention all the leftover embryos simply destroyed or donated to science to be destroyed. Do you guys have an estimate for me of the total number of babies killed through IVF? I mean, I think we can give an estimate of some kind, at least based on data from the UK. The UK, which we've established, is much better regulated than the US, right? Yeah, that's why we have decent data, at least. So in particular, let's take the period from mid-1991 to the end of 2011 as a starting point, because there's good data from the HFEA, which is a British organization that's like contracts for the government. I forget how it goes, but think of it as a government organization And HEFA stands for Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority. So, in that period, they said that 3,546,818 embryos were created in Petri dishes through IVF. Okay, so just to be clear, this isn't even a total number of embryos created in Great Britain since IVF started. No, it's just a starting point, a slice of data from a 20-year period. We'll extrapolate from there, but for now... Just consider that even in that window of time, which is not even half the time IVF has been up and running in Britain, 3,546,818 embryos. Wow. 
So out of those, some were still being frozen at the time for patients. Some had been discarded, destroyed. Or they were marked for a donation to science. Also read that as destroyed. Right. And some were transferred into a woman's womb. Let's break down those numbers a little. Okay, so total still in storage in hopes of leading to birth at some point down the line, 841,396. Total consigned to destruction, 1,720,446. Total transferred, 1,388,443. So, out of roughly 3.5 million little babies created in this slice of time, almost half were simply consigned to destruction. That's right. And that's not counting the ones that died in the womb. That's right. Again, this stuff is insane. So how many babies were actually born from all the ones that were transferred, quote unquote? Okay, so another report from the HFEA says, quote, In the UK, 224,196 babies were born after IVF treatment between 91 and 2011. So unless my math deserts me... (laughs) Which it won't. I know it will not then that means there was roughly one baby born for every six embryos transferred. That's a lot of death right there. Yeah. If you want to talk big picture, okay, one baby's born for every six embryos transferred, but that means one baby's born for every 16 or so embryos created. Or to look at it from another angle, for every 16 babies created through IVF, right, nine were discarded, quote unquote. Five died during pregnancy. One was frozen, and one was born. No matter what, no matter how you figure it up, it's a whole lot of dead or still frozen babies for every living baby. 15 to 16 for every living baby. It's not unreasonable to take that ratio and apply it to all the babies born through IVF. Which would give us a ballpark estimate of dead IVF children. Well, dead plus imprisoned, frozen, whatever you want to call it. Imprisoned in freezers, yeah. Right. So how many babies that we did we say that had been born through IVF? Yeah, so we mentioned that there was a there was a report from 2018, I forget which episode, and we said that this report claimed over 8 million babies had been born worldwide through IVF. And it's almost 4 years now since they made that report. IVF has only accelerated. So I don't know where we are now. 9 million, 10 million. Yeah, so if we apply our ratio to the 9 million number, say, we can work backwards to a total number of 142,380,000 embryos created to over 142 million little ones bearing God's image. And if we guess that, like in Britain, roughly half of them were simply discarded, that's around 70 million, not counting those that died in the womb, which would be another 45 million more. So that's 135 million total dead. Then there's all the millions and millions in the freezers. Right. Then there's the fact that this isn't regulated everywhere, not regulated the same. So who knows how good the ratio of birth to creation is in, say, the U.S.? Yeah, think about the U.S. Think about other countries with older technology. I'm guessing these numbers, we're spitballing our low estimates. So there's a reason it's not regulated here, right? Where there's regulation, there's going to be more accountability. We don't have that kind of accountability. So maybe these are really low estimates of how many embryos have actually been created. Okay, we've done three episodes, guys, and we've thrown around so many terms and we've talked about so many things and we've, you know, in our lovable manner, we've pretended like you got to wait till the end to get to our actual point of view on this whole thing. But 
I think our point of view is pretty clear, right? I think so too. Yeah, just stay away from it. Have nothing to do with any of it. Now, there very well may be listeners who have participated in this process, who have given embryos, who have used this to have children and then have other children that were created that are in storage somewhere. What would you guys say to those people? There's different levels of culpability in some sense, because there is a conspiracy in our society to lie about these things and hide the truth of what's going on. The lying and deception has been covering these practices since the very beginning, right? Like people at the outset, like we talked about, were participating in it without knowing they're participating in it. Mm-hmm. It's, why, it's one thing to give up an unfertilized egg to science. It's another thing to do that, knowing that somebody is going to inseminate that egg with their own sperm and then kill it and then kill the baby, the resulting baby. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. For instance, which is one yeah. thing that was an essential part of the development mm-hmm. of this scientifically. Yeah. So you have all of that sort of thing surrounding this and then people lying. These are fertility treatments, right? Right. These are about fertility and that's the language that's used. And so, oh, I'm not fertile. I want to have a baby. Well, there are options. There are fertility options. There are ways that we can make that happen for you. They're moral. They're ethical. This is the kind of thing that we tell you. This is the kind of thing that we sell you. We have the AMA having redefined conception to align with implantation. So you're allowed to talk, if you're a doctor or a medical professional, you're, you're allowed to talk about these babies as embryos in scientific terms and not as conceived children because they've not been implanted in mother's womb yet. So they're not viable, they're nothing, they're property. And that's how the law treats them and that's how the scientific community and medical community surrounding these babies in this process treats it. So there's just levels and layers of deception on deception. You take that and you put it together with the deception of the human heart of a mom who's desperate, who wants to have a baby. And yeah, everything we're talking about is evil. Everything we're talking about is morally culpable. But as Ben said, there are differing degrees of moral culpability. And then there's a reality too that God's mercy extends to everyone who comes to him through Christ. There's grace for everyone who repents of their sin. So part of it is accepting and embracing the reality that this is sinful. The actions taken are sinful. If you do that and look it square in the face, you can repent of it. And repenting of it, you can be forgiven. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it would be the same thing if we were talking like we do on the world we made about abortion. Well, the gospel is for people who've had abortions. Who is it for if not for them? I mean, they need the blood of Jesus to cover the blood that they've shed. And the point of these episodes is not to beat you down if you've done this or been a part of this world. The point is that you would know this and look it in the face and turn away from it and turn to Christ and realize that these things are not compatible with the Christian profession. Like, they're not compatible with the gospel. Okay, anyway, big picture. This is an evil industry, a murderous industry, an unregulated industry. I don't want to be insensitive. I know people have real fertility problems, but basically you should have nothing to do with the fertility industry. End of story. End of episode. Well, Nathan, as it (laughs) happens, my wife and I are doing embryo adoption. So. Okay. 
this is the part where the devil's advocacy alarm goes off, I guess, but uh, I'm not going to subject this tender real life issue to that. But Ben, we've just spent three episodes talking about how evil this industry is and how bloodthirsty it is. The big twist ending of our series is that you guys are participating in it. What's with that? Well, we're not we're not participating in it any more than Christians were participating in fathers in ancient Rome killing their babies by leaving them fur the wolves to eat outside the walls. Those Christians went and rescued the babies. Rescue is what you're doing when you adopt an embryo. You're rescuing them. They they came about through a dark, evil scientific process that never should have been done, but we're rescuing them. We're not supporting the assisted reproductive technology industry. By God's will, actually millions of kids have been born through IVF. And God has ordained it that this awful process would produce children. Okay, but Ben, you're, I understand you're rescuing them, but you're also giving money. You're helping, aren't you? Isn't there a sense in which you're perpetuating this system? No. Like you don't go to the black magic sorcerer and give him money. Let me present you with the dilemma. Mm. Okay, because this is what you're saying. You have the wealth and the means Let's go back 200, 300 years. The slave ship arrives from Africa and there are families being split up and there are children being separated from their parents. And you have the means to step in and reconnect the family or to pull some of those children out of slavery. Okay, you have the means, you have the inclination. Are you really trying to say that you shouldn't do that because the money goes into the hands of the slaver, therefore these families should be split apart? Well, I mean, if I wanted to make the argument, I could say, you know, uh, if uh, Mr. Cruel Jerkington is now going to have more money to go split up more families. But what about this family? Does this family matter? That's it. That's the level that we think about this. It's Mm -hmm. a dark, perverse industry, but these children are made in God's image and they matter. They're locked away in freezers and they matter. They matter to God. And a Christian sees through the scientific terminology, the words like embryo, and sees someone made in God's image who's in distress, who's locked away, treated as property and as a slave, and says, I want you. I want to save you from this. I can't I can't do it all. I can't turn this industry on its head. But this one baby set on the hillside, this one family coming off the slave ship, this one child locked in a freezer, this one I can make a difference for. And the more Christians that live and think this way, the more of a difference we actually make. And okay, we can't do it all, but this one matters. This one matters to God. The two in Megan's womb matter to God and God sees. And there is no child locked in a storage facility. There's no tear that's been shed. There's no drop of innocent blood where he won't make it all right in the end. But this is one little way that he makes things right before that day. Yeah, over on World We Made mm-hmm. podcast, which we're doing a season on abortion right now, you can hear us deal with kind of the dilemma of our big picture social responsibilities a lot at length there. So I think you can go there if you want a more nuanced version of this discussion. One thing that you do say on one of those episodes where we briefly touch on IVF, Ben, is that you read, I believe he was a Catholic ethicist 
mm-hmm. uh, correct me if I'm wrong, who said, well, it's evil, so we should just unplug everything. Yeah, yep. I think that guy was a Lutheran or an Anglican or something, actually. He wasn't Catholic, but he just said, no, you can't adopt these babies. You are involving yourself in evil if you do that. So, yeah, maybe just have a little funeral service while you unplug all the cryo tanks. Which is like saying, let's dump all the slaves into the ocean or let's... We're uh, not going to be part of this dark industry. Bye, slaves. Hey, Amy Carmichael, burn down the temple where they have all the children trapped in prostitution. Yeah, that's right. Kill them all. Oh, did an evil king steal your babies? Well, torch the whole thing, I guess. Right. Don't pay that evil king a ransom, for sure, because then you're supporting his evil kingdom. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Ben. We've had three episodes on this, and what I want to ask is, your wife is pregnant with with two little babies Mm -hmm. that were cryo-frozen. Let's assume that someday those little babies grow up and listen to this episode. What do you want them to know? That's a really good question. What do you want them to hear? I want them to know that we loved them and wanted them, and that we're their parents. We're their mom and dad, and that God put us in their lives. I don't see any way around them reckoning with, nor nor do I want to hide from them, the story of their origins. And I think our kids are going to want to know why their genetic parents rejected them. And I don't mean that we're going to teach our kids that their parents rejected them. That's not what I mean. What I mean is the reality of the circumstances will make them realize that on some level, They were not chosen to be part of their family of genetic origin. They were, in other words, factually speaking, rejected, and they'll feel that on an emotional level at some point. I guess we could try to hide the truth of their story from them, but of course I'm not going to do that. I'm not interested in hiding the truth of their adoption from them. And so when they feel that way, when they feel that pressure and and that, that sense of the loss of their birthright, their original genetic mom and dad, We want to be able to talk with them about that and to help them navigate that relationship with their genetic parents. We actually have an open adoption, and we've just begun a little bit of communication with the genetic parents, and we hope that that relationship grows and becomes sweet and that we can get to know them better and that they can play some role, whatever it is, we don't know yet, in our children's lives. And that that can be kind of a healing thing for our kids to have, to help them connect the dots of their own origins. And all kids who are adopted on some level have to deal with that sense, that reality of, I was not chosen. I was, in fact, rejected. I lost something that's mine. And you have to help all adopted children navigate that and figure it out as best you can. The relationship between parents and children has always been split apart in various terrible ways by many things. This is just a more perverse scientific version that fractures things earlier at the point of genetic embryonic development. So we want them to know and reckon with that and it's kind of a question of how we'll train them, how we'll teach them, how we'll tell them their story But we want to help them face it with hope and know that at the end of the day, they do have parents who love them and want them, and that's God's hand in their lives. Life is complicated and it's hard, but God is good. And even more than that, 
this is a reflection of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ in bringing us into his adopted family, making us his sons and daughters. And that's what I want my kids to know, is I want them to see that there's a divine version of adoption that's more important and more fundamental to our humanity and our identity than even what my wife and I are doing, have done for these little ones. God has adopted us into his family and made us a permanent part of his family and given us the rights of natural children, just as though we'd been his faithful and obedient son, Jesus Christ. We weren't. We didn't deserve to be brought in, but we've been brought in by the blood of Christ. That's a beautiful, actually, part of our identity and our story and who we are. And it's not something to be ashamed of. It's something to be proud of. Since Adam and Eve, we have been trying to play God. We mess it up. We mess it up. We mess it up. We make it bloodier and worse. We cover our hands in blood guilt. And God reaches into the darkest places and redeems us. We've spent three episodes talking about how dark and evil and depraved this little corner of the world is. And part of why we've done it is because God is working through you to step in even to that place and redeem, Mm -hmm. to save. And it's a perfect picture of what Jesus did for us. Yeah. And so even though there are tragic breaks between parents and children, and like I said, between, in this case, genetic parents and their genetic children. And it's something that's not natural, it's not good, it's a result of sin, it shouldn't have happened, this process shouldn't have been created, it's like black pagan magic, except science. It doesn't determine your story. What determines who you are is God's choice of you in Christ. And by analogy, on a lesser level, our choice of these children as their parents That's good. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing because it's the shape of what God has done for us in Jesus. Jesus.